tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Two historical events that look eerily similar, the insurrection on the Capitol in 2021 and the days leading up to Abraham Lincoln's first inauguration 160 years earlier. There were actually crowds trying to get into the Capitol, just like on January 6th. There were unruly sort of drunken men swearing, trying to get in. But then inside, there were politicians giving speeches, denouncing the result. It's not that I'm only thankful to God. He gave this experience, this chance to live. The world tends to, you know, melt away. So it, it's truly um, a great escape. You know, you're so focused on the bird, um, you're no longer focused on yourself um, or the trials and tribulations, you, you know, that can um, inundate us, you know, from day to day. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. Michelle San Miguel is off tonight. There's arguably no president who's more beloved in our nation's history than Abraham Lincoln. He guided the nation during the Civil War and issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which led the way to completely abolishing slavery in the United States. Thousands of books have been written about him, but a Rhode Island-based historian came across new information that sheds light on how a divided country came to know Lincoln as the nation was on the verge of a civil war. Michelle San Miguel brings us the story. He's moving very fast, and if he slows down too much, he becomes vulnerable again, because when he's standing still is when someone can get close to him with um, bad intent. That fast-moving man was Abraham Lincoln, on board a train headed to his inauguration in Washington, D.C. Historian and Rhode Island-based author Ted Widmer spent years combing through newspaper articles and research, retracing Lincoln's 13-day journey starting in Illinois. I went into a deep vortex, almost like time travel, and I would go anywhere I could find out a shred of information about anything that happened to Abraham Lincoln during these 13 days. It was February of 1861. Lincoln was receiving daily death threats over his opposition to slavery. Seven states had already seceded from the Union, and the nation was on the cusp of a civil war. You write a great deal about how there was a lot at stake as Lincoln made his way toward Washington, D.C. What was at risk? Well, the survival of democracy, basically, um, and a kind of principled democracy that really believed in the, the worth of every individual. So if this form of self-government is going to survive, we need a strong United States of America to show people how it's done. In Lincoln on the Verge, Widmer follows the president-elect's 1,900-mile route through the capitals of Indiana, Ohio, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, states that had elected him. In the North, there is hope that he will come in and be a strong president, but there's a lot of anxiety. There, there has never been a president from this party. It's a brand new party called the Republican Party, 
and the idea that a new kind of a president is coming in and may get rid of slavery or will somehow inhibit the spread of slavery. That's scary to Northerners too, including in Rhode Island because there are Northerners with extensive economic interests in the, in the South. But in the South, it's much worse than anxiety. It's really hatred. He is built up in the Southern press as a kind of monster. As Lincoln was en route to Washington, his rival Jefferson Davis was rushing toward his own inauguration in Montgomery, Alabama. Widmer describes it as a race between two competing philosophies. Widmer says digging through this chapter of Lincoln's life was a labor of love, and his passion for history is evident and on display in his home on the east side of Providence, from his collection of old maps to this portrait of Lincoln. Something about him has always attracted me the way it attracts millions of Americans, something in the sadness of the face and, the, you know, the uh, incredible story. You know, we talk about rags to riches and, and the American dream, but no one ever came from as obscure a background and achieved as much as, as Abraham Lincoln. He literally saved our country. Many people saw Lincoln for the first time during his inaugural train ride to D.C. He stopped in eight states, ultimately shaking thousands of hands. But that trip could be viewed as a foreshadowing of what was to come. At the very beginning of the trip, there was a device found on the track, even in Illinois, near the border with Indiana, on the very first day that someone had put there to cause some mayhem. It was found by uh, people looking ahead on the route, and so the danger was removed. But then in Cincinnati, a couple days later, a bag was placed with an explosive device in Lincoln's car moments before he got onto the train and it was found and removed. There were dangers at every corner, including a plot to kill him in Baltimore. Still, Lincoln gave about 100 speeches throughout the trip on and off the train. To shore up democracy, writes Widmer, Lincoln needed to speak every time that a crowd formed near his train. He's walking a tightrope. He knows he is facing real danger. He's been informed about this plot and every day they're getting more information about it. So he's literally heading into the jaws of danger. I mean, he's heading toward Baltimore. There's no way he can get to Washington without going through Baltimore. Um, but he also just has an intuitive sense that he's got to get out there and talk about America and talk about himself and sell the idea of the Lincoln presidency to a public that still feels a lot of doubt and anxiety before he has even become president. As the president-elect was traveling through Ohio, Congress was meeting to certify the results of the 1860 election. But Widmer says it was a fraught day as Lincoln haters tried to disrupt the count. There were actually crowds trying to get into the Capitol, just like on January 6th. There were unruly sort of drunken men swearing, trying to get in. But then inside, there were politicians giving speeches, denouncing the result, just like we saw on January 6th. There were fears that Congress might take over the election. A lot of power lay in the hands of Vice President John C. Breckinridge, a pro-Southern candidate who also ran against Lincoln. He's the one who's in charge of counting the, the electoral votes. And he refused to cheat. 
He's kind of like Mike Pence in this story. He refused to cheat, and he presided over an honest count that declared Lincoln the president-elect. Widmer's book was published in 2020, nine months before the insurrection on the Capitol. As he watched the attack unfold, Widmer was struck by the similarities between that day and the days leading up to Lincoln's inauguration. One of the moving parts of my book was that ordinary people started walking around the Capitol to defend it in the days when they felt that there might be a pro-Southern takeover of the Capitol before Lincoln even got there. And people like firemen, blacksmiths, just sort of, you know, the working people of Washington, D.C. did not want to see a coup happen in their city. I mean, they're, it's where they're from. And they came out and sort of patrolled around the Capitol to keep an eye on it. And we need to be the same way in 2022. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney read Widmer's book before the attack on the Capitol. The lifelong Republican lost her congressional seat after sitting on the House January 6th committee. I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. Widmer says Cheney recently called him to talk about the book. She worried about what might have happened had the Capitol rioters got in their hands on the boxes containing the electoral votes. Her political intelligence is so sharp, she knew that was a weak point in our system and that we needed to be really careful on the day of the counting of the electoral vote. So she said my book gave her some foreknowledge that was very valuable to her that day. It's been more than 160 years since Lincoln's inaugural train ride, but Widmer hopes that what happened back then continues to resonate today. What's the main thing you want readers to take from your book? I want them to look at Lincoln as a flesh and blood human being, not someone we see in a statue or a painting and can't connect to. He was very brave and stood up for his country when his country needed him. And from those understandings of Lincoln, I hope we can all, for ourselves, find some of those same qualities. January 6th showed how fragile our very strong country actually is. And so we all need to stand up individually, but also helping each other. And I think we'll be a better country if we do that. Up next, it's been nearly 10 months since Russian forces embarked on a major assault on Ukraine. Today, recent attacks on critical infrastructure in the neighboring country have many fearing for the safety of Ukrainians as winter approaches. Tonight, we take a look at the war's impact closer to home and introduce you to one man and his family who lost nearly everything in the war-torn nation. They are now attempting to rebuild their lives one step at a time in Rhode Island, with the help of life's universal language, music. In a collaboration with the Boston Globe, senior producer Justin Kenny and Globe Rhode Island contributor Ali Michelle Conti bring you their story. 
My name is Oleksandr or Alex Krishuk. Uh, I came here from Ukraine. And we're coming on the air at this hour with breaking news after the U.S. warned all day of a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine that it was imminent. Vladimir Putin has just addressed the Russian people moments ago, announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation, in his words, to demilitarize Ukraine. The first plan was to stay in our house and we want only children left. Uh, but in the first minutes we understood it's very seriously situation and uh, everybody must fled. Uh, so we very quickly jumped in our car. We went on the road, the road was packed, this car, and very slowly we came and we had no idea where to go. First idea was go to Poland uh, border, uh, to Lutsk, uh, to, to Warsaw. Uh, but uh, we get news, uh, uh, Russian racket uh, bombed uh, Rivne and Lutsk also. So we turn left on the uh, Chernivtsi area and to Romania border. And when we uh, came there, uh, a crowd of people, mostly women and children, um, crying. It was very cold. It was a terrible situation. Uh, Many times I saw on TV what's happened in Syria or, or in other countries when refugees uh, left uh, countries, but I cannot imagine I, I can be, I can see it's my eyes what's happened. I'm standing in this crowd uh, and crying, and I'm saw on my kids, I saw on my gr grandchildren, and have no idea what will be happened. Our house was crowded with uh, kids, teenagers, especially New Year's Eve or Christmas or uh, uh, birthday celebration, all time. Uh, our house was full with music, kids and joy and preparing food. Before war, it was very active life. Now, I was involved in music ministry in Ukraine and music education. So my uh, main point of my life was training uh, choir conductor and conduct choir, organize different choir, and also serve in the church. Five thousand people have been registered in the choir, coming from many republics throughout this vast country. Their songs stirred the people, and particularly this national song entitled Over Our Homeland, which they had been forbidden to sing for many years. Let's listen.
in five or six weeks after we left, uh, we get news Russian army left uh, Irpin. And next hour we get a picture and all our family crying because it was absolutely all destroyed, uh, bombing and everything was burning. A big library, a good collection of music instruments, all, all, all photos, all, all what we collect uh, during the last 35-40 years. Uh, every day we crying and praying about them because they have no apartment, no house. They stay in one, one apartment, but Russian racket came and destroyed near electricity station near the house. It's very difficult, difficult time. Did you read, Sasha, Alex, did you read this news this morning? No. Work here soon. Oh, Sunny. I visited many countries and uh, you know it's one side when came this concert or came as a tourist but another way to come as a refugee. I met a very deeply um, empathy and compa compassion uh, and people with this deep love is with open heart. I never met angry people and uh, they said, why you ask me something? Everywhere I met very good. Does it make you sad to think about your former life? If to say I'm sad or not sad, uh, I understand the life is a journey uh, on, the, on the way of journey from uh, day of birth to, till day of death and we must came through different uh, events in our life and it, when I uh, see back on my life it's not said I'm only thankful to God he gave this experience this chance to live and now I understand it's new period of my life and uh, even I need to start from uh, zero level I will do it
Finally, this is prime hunting season, and now we take a bird's eye view at some Rhode Islanders who have an unconventional way of stalking game in the woods. Their partners have keen vision, curved beaks, and sharp talons. Tonight, we visit with falconers and the hunters of the sky. Working with these birds and, and hunting with them, you're truly one with nature. You're really interacting with them and it's hands-on. You know, it's not something that you're, you're observing. You're, you're a part of it. Jim Gwizinski of Westerly has been part of the sport of hunting with birds of prey for 27 years. He is a master falconer, currently training this raptor. The aesthetics of it are, are extremely invigorating. I think that, you know, what it, the, the bond that, that you share with these birds is, is pretty magnificent. Um, they're not pets. The sport itself, I mean, where it brings you are some, some beautiful places, some beautiful habitat. It takes place in open fields and country woodlands during a season that runs from October to February. Falconry, or hawking, is training raptors to hunt game with you. Witnessing their majestic flight, you understand why it was crowned the sport of kings. Its origins date back centuries to the Middle East, eventually migrating to medieval Europe, especially with royalty. It remained popular until the introduction of guns. Today, falconry is a specialized sport, according to Gwizinski, similar to fly fishing. There is a, an art to it, to falconry, and there is a finesse to it in the sense of setting the hunt up and, you know, almost trying to muscle the hunt if you will, or control it as much as you can. Originally, what was the object of falconry? It was uh, point in fact who put food on the table, uh, especially prior to the invention of firearms. What about today? The same. I, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I, I've eaten rabbit, I've eaten squirrel. Um, you, you've yeah. eaten rabbit and squirrel? I have. I actually prefer squirrel to Because? Um, the taste. And yeah, you know, rabbit, you know, they, they tend to... They'll have a few fleas and ticks on them here oh. and there, so. Um, <laughs> so you can't be squeamish to you participate can. in this sport. You can't, and no, you can't. I mean, it is a hunting, it, a hunting sport. It all begins by capturing the bird of prey. Gwizinski says he either has to climb to a nest to get a hatchling or catch an immature bird in a special net. You understand that there are going to be people who find this objectionable, mm -hmm. that you're taking hatchlings from the nest or, you know, trapping a, a, a wild bird. Mm -hmm. How do you answer that? I, I say that, sure, you know, I, I, I can get that, that point of view. I think if they understood the, the amount of time and energy um, and, and enthusiasm but care that we have for these birds, about 75 to 80 percent do not make it through their first year. So as falconers, we're allowed to trap these immature raptors um, and we leave the actual mature birds alone. So you see yourselves as conservationists? I do. It was truly falconers that had a lot to do with the thrust and the push to get peregrine falcons off the endangered species list. According to Gwizinski, peregrine falcons are now nesting under several bridges in Rhode Island and atop the Superman building in downtown Providence, where they can be watched with their brood on a webcam. This creature is the first peregrine falcon the state has allowed to be captured. She's considered the most prized of hunting birds. Other raptors are also used for hunting, such as this kestrel, the smallest of falcons. Also merlins, goshawks, cooper's hawks, and especially red-tail hawks. 
Stephen Wood is training a red-tailed hawk. He had to apprentice for two years, then pass a field test. After five years as a general, he can apply to be a master falconer. There are federal requirements, and Rhode Island Environmental Management regulates hawking, overseeing licensing. Gwazinski says the sport is a commitment year-round. It goes beyond um, a hobby. It's a passion. Um, it, it really is a lifestyle. It's, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, these birds are, are cared for um, every day. It's not a passing fancy, and it's certainly something that you just can't, you know, put on a shelf and, and forget about. Gwazinski says training begins with food-based reward and getting the predator to eat from your hand. And as you're doing this, you're, you're trying to establish a, a trust with the bird. And then what you do is you'll, you'll put the bird on, on a perch, say, a few feet away, and you start to incorporate the whistle. And you whistle and get the bird to jump, you know, take a, a little bit of a, a flight at you. And they land on the glove, you give them the tidbit, you put them back, and then you, you walk further away. And essentially, you're getting the bird to fly to you farther and farther away. The whistle calls the bird back to the hunter. In training, they do this on a leash called a creance. Then a leather lure is introduced. This is another means of enticing the bird's return while hunting in the field. When the raptors are released to nearby trees, falconers go into the woods, literally beating the bushes with sticks to get their quarry to move. And if an animal is spotted, say a rabbit, the hunter gives a distinct call to alert the bird to their prey. Their visual acuity is, is phenomenal. What they're starting to do is they're, they make the connection between, you know, something going, something running, and, and the falconer. If a quarry actually does, um, you know, come out of a, a briar patch or, or squirrel out of a, you know, a dray or, you know, it's, it's running a tree line, the bird will actually key in on that game call, if you will. We are more or less the... Um, the beagle, you know, we're the ones that are pushing this, this the, you know, the quarry for these birds. Gwazinski says most of the kill taken in the hunt is preserved as future feed for the falcons. After all this training, most of these birds of prey will be released back to the wild after just a few seasons. Hunters say they are borrowed. For Gwazinski and a handful of other falconers in Rhode Island, a day spent with their sky hunters defies description the world tends to, you know, melt away. So it, it's truly um, a great escape. You know, you're so focused on the bird, um, you're no longer focused on yourself um, or the trials and tribulations, you know, that can um, inundate us, you know, from day to day. Sometimes you just can't put it in words. I was, I was just say, hey, it's just, it's what I love to do. That's our broadcast this evening. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.